Wanger, the HB in HB TV. Today is Ask Harry Anything. Unfortunately, the last time we did this, I was sort of stumped by a couple of questions which were outside my field, but I think we're covered for today's uh, question and answers. The first one is about Sheldon Cooper from The Big Bang Theory, because I talked about the show Young Sheldon last time on HBTV, and this is left over. The question is, is Sheldon mostly, quote, selfish, quote, or mostly selfish? No quotes. I think what the questioner must be getting at is, is Sheldon Cooper the character? What the wrong idea of selfishness that's in the culture or is he the kind of rational selfishness that we advocate, we who subscribe to Ayn Rand's philosophy? And I would say he's mostly selfish in the proper sense, except he lacks all social skills and he functions by rituals such as bringing a guest a hot beverage if they're feeling bad. He is almost autistic. He doesn't know how to read people's emotions and he has no social skills. But aside from the comedic exaggerations, I think he is concerned. He's a man of purpose, reason, purpose, self-esteem. That's Those are the three cardinal values of um, the objectivist morality. So I would say, leaving aside certain comedic exaggerations, yeah, I think he is selfish in the proper sense. But now let me go to an epistemological question. Don't ever put a proper concept that's been misused in scare quotes like that. I know you're just doing it for a question. So you get a free pass. But for those of you who are advocates and exponents of objectivist philosophy, there's a stage where you go through, which you go through, where you say, well, he's really selfish in the other sense, in the bad sense of the term. And that is a stage that has to be transcended in the Hegelian sense. That is, that's a vestige of holding the wrong conceptualization. Because people who are conventionally called selfish aren't. They're selfless. They're self-destructive. Think of Bernie Madoff and um, Bankman uh, at the uh, latest fraud. These are people who give up their selves. These are people who sacrifice themselves on the idol of money or fame or how much they can impress other people. Peter Keating in The Fountainhead is not, quote, selfish, quote, he is unselfish. Hitler is not, quote, selfish, quote, he's self-destructive. And he ended up killing himself, as had to happen. So do not accept 
that there are two concepts, selfishness sub one and selfishness sub two, and we favor selfishness sub two, not and even though they have different definitions. There is only one concept, the concept of rational selfishness. There's only one proper concept, I should say. And do never, you know, try to get beyond the stage where you're saying, well, is he quote selfish quote the proper question is is sheldon mostly self-sacrificial or mostly selfish and i think he's most mostly selfish but other characters like peter keating or real life figures who destroy themselves are sacrificing that which is their inner essence their minds they are becoming parasites on other people. That's what an exploiter is. An exploiter is someone who thinks he can't demonstrate rational values that he has to offer to other people. And he's probably right. So he attempts to swindle them or force them as a substitute. A substitute for what? A substitute for producing value. For if you produce like Howard Rourke, produce value, and he was able to find people who could perceive that value. Peter Keating, his antithesis in The Fountainhead, does not produce value. He produces things for show, things to impress, things that he thinks will get him a market and fame and rise in the profession. And he's destroyed by it because he's selfless. So I'm picking on the wording there, but concepts are important. Words are important. They're the way that you deal with reality. They're your link to success, to values. So don't use a terms to span both good and evil, which is what selfish sub one and self, don't use the same word. I know you're beyond using the same concept, but don't even use the same word and try and distinct, well, there's selfish in the bad sense, selfish in the right. No. If you think about it, it's selfish in the proper sense or self-destructive, self-sacrificial, oriented towards other people, lacking an ego. The other uh, way that you see this is when they say, boy, the problem with Hitler's had an enormous ego or on a lesser scale. These Hollywood actors have an enormous ego. They always have to be flattered. If you had an enormous ego, you wouldn't need to be flattered. You wouldn't need to force people. You wouldn't be that connected to other people. You'd be self-sufficient unto yourself. So the problem with these people who uh exploit other people use other people demand affection and approval from other people they lack a self they're not confident in themselves they lack an ego next question well there are two questions actually that are the mirror image of themselves one question is people in academia have an extremely hard time processing causality and integration. Well, yeah, 
it's almost worse than that. It's almost a glamorization. And here's the real question. Are universities giant disintegration machines? And a later question is, I'm a longtime objectivist. It boggles the mind that we're not further along culturally. Why is that? And by further along, he means that objectivism is not more widely accepted in the culture. Why is it? Why is it so slow to make progress? Well, that, because the answer to the first one, the universities are giant disintegration machines. So there's a man named John Dewey at the turn of the century who created progressive education. And you can read Ayn Rand's view of the destructiveness of this philosophy and approach to education in her article, The Comprachicos, which is in Return of the Primitive, which I think now has a new title. It's an amazing essay on education and how it creates little obedient robots who can't think. So yes, universities as the pyramid, as the peak, the apex of the education institution is grinding out people who can't connect. Uh, the question goes on to say they are adamant, the universities, students don't identify commonalities and start putting them together. Boy, let me give you an example of that. There was a professor at Berkeley who I worked as a uh, teaching assistant for who assigned a paper to a class that was really on objectivism as a reading course in objectivism that students arranged to have. And that's why I was there. It's a long story, but he didn't like, he liked a lot of things about objectivism. And he said, I'm 45% an objectivist, he told me over lunch when I arrived. That sounded very good to I realized that means the controlling interest is non-objectivist, and that's what turned out. So he didn't like the fact that Ayn Rand identifies Kant as evil and destructive. So he assigned uh, to us to write a paper on one of Kant's works. It's a work on ethics, and it's really a disgusting piece. It's, it has one of the most evil passages that I've ever read in philosophy, and that's saying something. So the students were all taking the course because they were interested in Ayn Rand, and he wanted to knock out of them the idea that Kant was a bad guy, because he didn't believe that. So he assigned uh, take this book and answer the question of whether Kant believes that human beings are ends in themselves, which is the language he uses, and it's also the language Ayn Rand uses, but they mean the opposite thing. So students, one student in particular wrote a paper saying, in this work, he talks about reason, 
But what he means by reason is a mystical faculty of intuition that grasps a noumenal reality, as he calls it, another world of things in themselves that ordinary thinking can't ever penetrate to and we can't ever know anything about except through pure reason, which is a kind of intuition. So the professor, and here's the point of the whole story, the professor gave him a D or an F saying, you brought in his position on reason and I didn't assign that. I wanted you to go by what's in this book and the noumenal world and the phenomenal world is not in this book. So he flunked the student because the student identified a wider connection and started putting things together. I forget whether it's a D or an F. So because the educational system has been in, in America, has been in the hands of the progressives, not just the political progressives, but the progressives of the look-say method, of social adjustment, of working in groups in grade school rather than working on your own, of teaching citizenship and adjustment to the group as the ideal, because that has been the American educational system for some 50 or 60 years, modern younger people, people younger than about 60, are really challenged by abstract ideas. And generally, they don't want to hear about them. Now, there's a tendency for every generation to think the next generation is all messed up. But I'll give you uh, an example. Uh, uh, when I was in college, there was almost no one who would admit to believing in God. There were uh, a few people in the Christian anti-communist crusade who were looked upon by everybody else as wacko. They had a small chapel that could only hold about 30 people. And uh, religion just wasn't a factor. That changed as people couldn't think any longer. They couldn't connect that religion contradicts science. They were pro-science, pro-technology, but they didn't see that this contradicts a belief in a spirit who created the universe out of a wish because they didn't think abstractly. They never considered that. And another data point, uh, two of my friends who I picked as friends below the age of 14, one of them was my best friend when I was four. Two of them out of my, you know, small circle that I know about have become virtual objectivists. Now, if you have friends today who come along to objectivism, despite progressive education, I want to know about it. Why is another data point. Why are English students, that is students in England and Great Britain, why are they so much more literate, articulate, educated, 
rational than American students because that John Dewey was an American. He had his biggest influence in America. So there's a lag time before these ideas have uh, rotted away the brains of the younger generation in England. You know, they say that Canada is a halfway house between the United States and the United Kingdom. And I had several Canadian friends who were objectivists, and I observed that the papers their students wrote were miles above the papers that my college students could write. And I attributed that, again, to, well, they're not completely under the sway of progressive education. So I think the real reason why we're not further along, now I'm not saying why we're not in an objectivist utopia, but why we're not markedly more further along is the influence of John Dewey. And John Dewey is a product of Immanuel Kant. He's the guy who derailed the Renaissance and the Enlightenment. And he, his goal was to save religion from science. And unfortunately, he's largely uh, succeeded in that goal. What is the test of whether something is considered misleading? This is entirely different now. What is the test of whether something is considered misleading but not fraudulent in advertising? Omitting important details, which some people would find relevant. For example, ice cream with no milk fat. Calling it ice cream when it has no milk fat. This is the area for law. This is one reason why we're not anarchists. There's no bright line test that you can say, well, should ice cream always have milk fat? If it has no milk fat and they call it ice cream, is that fraud? That has to be adjudicated. There has to be a single law that comes out of court decisions and there are options on this. It's not like society is going to fall if you say you can call it ice cream without milk fat. Or you can't. Either way, that's a kind of borderline case that doesn't make a lot of difference. But there has to be a decision. The makers of ice cream have to know what's legal and what isn't. And there's a big role for law courts, trials, juries, and they hammer out something and that becomes precedent. And then businesses can work within that if they know what it is. What they can't work within is a bureaucratic committee of changing makeup that rules on these things one at a time and then changes the rules two years later when the opposite party takes power. They need to know what the law is, what's permissible and what isn't. That is what will be punished and what will not. Now, obviously, there, to take a non-optional case, if you call it ice cream and it's made from rat parts or has rat parts in it, you're committing a fraud. You're getting money that no one would give you if he knew what he was buying. 
Fraud is an indirect use of physical force because you do not get the real consent of the person who pays you. You get a consent to something other than the transaction that takes place. So you're holding his money by mere physical possession. It's still rightfully his and you've stolen it through deceiving him about what is going on. So it's an important thing to realize that you don't have to answer all these little fussy questions in advance in order to have laissez-faire capitalism and uh, the actual operation of a proper governmental authority. Here's another question. Altruism and death worshiping philosophies that you discussed, does their immense popularity and dominance stem from a metaphysical era of life being a zero-sum game? Now, you know what that means, right? A zero-sum game. So I poker. Every dollar that one person wins, someone else lost. Now, life is not a zero-sum game. If it were, how would we have gotten out of the cave? Where, where did YouTube come from? Where did our clothes out of synthetic materials come from? Were they in some cave that the caveman had and we changed them around? And so now you have them, but Og the caveman doesn't? No, these things were invented. Wealth is created. So that's the issue. Do you recognize that wealth is created? It doesn't just shift around. Do I think that the bad philosophy is popular because people don't get that? No, I do not. I think it's the other way around. Altruism and death-worshipping philosophies in general, because that's a little wider than altruism, produce the rationalization or the zeitgeist that life is a zero-sum game. If the good is for you to sacrifice to the needy, well then, there's no such thing as value creation because if we admit it, well, wait a minute, you earned that money and now you have to turn it over to someone, some bum on the street just because he needs it. Then the question, why? Why, why doesn't he earn it? Well, he can't. Why not? Because he's an addict. He's a, an alcoholic. He's a this, he's a that. He hasn't got the brains. Well, you don't need much brains in a capitalist society to earn your living. You can park cars. You can uh, check coats at a restaurant. You can do a million things that wouldn't exist in the state of nature. So capitalism and wealth make it a lot easier for people who are not particularly able to survive. No, it's not that at all. It's that altruism sets up. Either I give away and hurt myself for your sake, or I can hope you will hurt yourself for my sake once in a while. So the terms that altruism operates under is who gives up a value 
and who gets the value that's given up. That's the center of their universe. So it's altruism that creates the idea that life is a zero-sum game because otherwise, how could it last for more than a few minutes? I mean, people who believe this, who work in software engineering, yet they know that they think up ideas and ways of coding that save time and money. Is that a zero-sum game? You're writing a program and you get an idea. Ah, I can put that into a function and then I won't have to rewrite that line every time. I can call the function and it will execute faster because it won't have to compile all that. You've just created wealth. Time saving is wealth saving because time is money and money is time. That old slogan is true. So people know that they're saving themselves effort all the time. Uh, I wonder if my picture is still this camera. Yeah. Sometimes the camera times out. I think I've got that licked. So people in, in our society, there are people called knowledge workers, right? People bemoan, we've lost manufacturing jobs. There's no more assembling. It isn't really true, but certainly the big companies now, Microsoft, Google, uh, Amazon, so forth, are much more intellectual products. So when you learn something, does that stop someone else from learning it? The fact that you now can order from, go online, oh, I want a new carburetor. Well, they don't have carburetors anymore. I've got a classic car. So I want a new carburetor for my car. I pick up my mouse and Google it, and Amazon delivers it the next day. Is that at the price of somebody else having to wait two weeks, whereas before he waited one week? No. Life is getting richer for all of us, and it's all around us. So it's the wrong philosophy that creates the rationalization and the emotional attitude. Oh, it's a zero-sum game. Um, I know Rand said she didn't know much regarding gun issues to speak of, but did she ever comment on guns to you in person? No. In your opinion, how do gun own laws ownership look in a free society? Well, I'm glad you asked. I was on the fence about this, or actually just didn't care that much for a long time. And then someone pointed out to me the issue is preventive law. The same reason why it's wrong to inspect immigrants at the border to, to make them prove they're not criminals and not going to parasitize or exploit or uh, use force on Americans. That's wrong because there's no evidence. The same reason why I'm in favor of open immigration, I'm in favor of open gun ownership. Sure, if you've been arrested, convicted, and sent to jail, 
you don't have the same rights as other people. But the fact that somebody picks up a gun and goes shoots up a school provides zero evidence that I'm going to do that with my gun. So how can you convict the innocent for the crimes of the guilty or regulate the innocent for the crimes of the guilty? The solution to these shootings does not lie in getting guns away. That's why the schools are shot are shot up, because it's a gun-free zone, or used to be. I think they're changing. So I have definitely moved over to the gun freedom position on epistemological grounds. You need evidence specific to the individual before you can use force against him. Now, this change, I think, is, you know, I would say two-thirds of my life, I just said, well, I don't know, it's an open issue. So it's, it's in the geological time scale, it's relatively recent. Um, another question, how can claims from someone else be as epistemologically sound as claims that are self-evident no, that is self-validate for elaboration. Take, for example, a professor teaches that evolution is fact versus the claim that there's a spoon on the table. With the former, one can at least evaluate the professor's credibility. But is that a proxy to the latter's mere observation of the table? No, it isn't. But it's not as bad as you might, making, might be making it sound. You don't know if you just take a course and the professor says evolution is fact. That is not enough for you to know. That is enough for you to say, well, what are his credentials? Is he in a position to know? And if you go through certain vetting of the expert, expert, you can say, well, it may be that evolution is fact. It may be, not that it is. To know that it's a fact, and what good would it do you to say it's a fact? Suppose, suppose we gave free tickets. Okay, if your professor says it, you can say it's a fact. What do you know? Well, the professor said something I'm vaguely familiar with about the tree of life being a tree of descent is a fact. Well, that's not knowledge. That's picture thinking. To, to know is to bring your consciousness in contact with reality. So the thing to do is to ask why? What makes you say it's a fact? And then he can bring forth evidence. So no, it is not a uh, expert testimony, even from a proper expert, is not a means of knowledge. It's a means of possibility, a means of forming a hypothesis, a reason to look into it further if you care. And incidentally about evolution, it is a fact and you should care. And there's wonderful things to read on it, explaining how we know it's a fact. The principle of natural selection I used in my doctoral dissertation. That was the core of my argument for 
all living organisms and only living organisms have genuine goals, but that's another story. So no, you cannot, you cannot, it's not just that, oh, it would be nice if I could take his say so as, as proof, but I can't do it. Unfortunately, epistemology won't let me. That's just not a way of knowing something. So what you would have if you committed your consciousness to know, he says it's a fact, so it's a fact, would not be an awareness of anything or not of anything much. You know, you might believe there were dinosaurs a long, long, long time ago or something, but what would you have if you claimed to have it? All right, I will answer one more question because it's short. Why did Ayn Rand make Eddie Willers have the fate he had, alone in the desert, maybe even dying? What exactly was Eddie's flaw? He seems like a really good person. He had no flaw. He was a really good person. And the question is a proper one. Why did she do that? To dramatize the fact that the average person, which Eddie represents, the average person, even if perfectly moral, depends upon the great achievers and producers and the heroes that he cannot progress or survive even in a collapsing economy if the, the best minds withdraw. So it's to make a point. And we don't know that he's going to die, but he's in trouble. So the when the heroes can't function, the average man is in trouble. That's what it's there to dramatize. I think that's enough. We're a little bit over our allotted time. So I'll see you next week on HBTV.